Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Intimately Acquainted with All My Ways. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 15, 2012. In December, astronomers reported that they had found the biggest black holes ever in the universe. Black holes are regions at the center of galaxies where gravity is so powerful that not even light can escape. One of these newly surveyed monsters, writes Dennis Overby in the New York Times, which weighs as much as 21 billion suns, is in an egg-shaped swirl of stars known as NGC 4889, the brightest galaxy in a sprawling cloud of thousands of galaxies about 336 million light-years away in the Coma constellation. Mind-boggling measurements like these once caused the physicist Richard Feynman to remark in an interview that, quote, it doesn't seem to me that this fantastically marvelous universe, this tremendous range of time and space and different kinds of animals, and all the different planets, and all these atoms with all their motions, and so on, all this complicated thing can merely be a stage so that God can watch human beings struggle for good and evil, which is the view that religion has. The stage is too big for the drama. (coughs) Richard Feynman's dismissal of religion isn't required by science. It's a personal and philosophic extrapolation. But he certainly speaks for many elite scientists who influence society with their prestige. And, let's be honest, Feynman also speaks for many ordinary people when they contemplate the scope and scale of time and space. It's enough to make you wonder, am I only a cosmic accident among billions of galaxies? I'm grateful for the gift of science, but science isn't the only way to know, and the material world isn't the only thing worth knowing. Science is a powerful means to knowledge, but by itself it's a means without any obvious ends. And all too often science becomes a means that refuses or transforms all ends that would constrain it. Instead, what's technologically possible can and will be done period. But science can tell you how to build a bomb, but not whether you should use it. It can help an infertile couple conceive a child, but not how to love that child. So I thank God for science, but for a more robust view of our lives and the world, we need to include poetry. John McDarr of Boston College recommends what he calls the perennial power of poetry, as a privileged medium. Poetry, he says, tunes the ears of the heart to the real way in which human beings most honestly and most deeply talk about their lives when they are speaking from the core of their experience. The reason for this has everything to do with the unique power of metaphor to carry thought forward. Psalm 1 39 for this week is a case in point. Yes, God is infinite, 
But the psalmist also describes God as intimate, intimately acquainted with all my ways. Whether I feel like it or not, whether I believe it or not, I'm always in the safe place of God's Spirit. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Instead of feeling like a demographic accident among seven billion people, every human being can say with the psalmist, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. The story of the little boy Samuel in the, this week's Old Testament reading reminds us that the God who created us and cares for us also calls us. As he tossed and turned one fitful night, three successive times we read, the Lord called Samuel. It was Samuel's part, advised Eli the priest, to respond to that divine call. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That divine call and human response echoes down to us today. It's repeated in John's Gospel this week when Jesus leaves for Galilee and finding Philip says to him, Follow me. God's call invites our response. When he speaks, we need to listen. To listen and pay attention, says Mary Oliver, is both harder and easier than it seems. In her poem, The Summer Day, Oliver describes attentiveness as a form of prayer. Listen to her poem, The Summer Day. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And similarly, in her poem called Praying, Oliver suggests that when we quiet ourselves and when we pay attention, we create a space in which another voice may speak. Listen to her poem, Praying. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but a doorway into thanks, and a silence in which another voice may speak. Life, writes the British poet David White in his poem, The Opening of Eyes, is no passing memory of what has been, nor the remaining pages in a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. In other words, it's paying attention to the God who creates, who cares, who calls, and who speaks. And it's responding with the little boy Samuel, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening.
books this week, I review Miroslav Volf, the title of Public Faith, How Followers of Christ Should Serve the Common Good. Grand Rapids, Brazos Press, 2011, 174 pages. Miroslav Volf, a systematic theologian at Yale and director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, explores in this book how, he, how believers are called to be in the world without themselves becoming worldly. There are many ways that our faith malfunctions, he observes. There's a general fear, not entirely unfounded, that believers will try to impose their faith on others. And then a predictable backlash of suppression and secular exclusion of religion from the public square. Some retreat into what Wolf calls the mystical and neglect their prophetic call. So somehow we need to avoid the pitfalls of accommodation, abandonment, and coercion. As H. Richard Niebuhr showed in his classic book, Christ and Culture, 1956, there's no one single way to be faithfully present in the world. The earliest believers, writes Wolf, were not major social players at all, but a fringe sect on the periphery of the powers. So there's no reason to bemoan any sense of diminished influence. And today, with power widely diffused through the media like the Internet, there are fewer places where it is obviously centralized. There are elements of culture Christians will accept, other elements we should reject, and still others we might hope to adopt and transform. In the end, Wolf objects to the criticism that Christian faith in a pluralistic world is inherently violent. Rather, he appeals to the golden rule. Believers should treat others in the world like they want to be treated. This is a vision of human flourishing for all people, not just a favored few, and what he calls the most important contribution of the Christian faith to the common good. Miroslav Wolf of Yale University, A Public Faith, How Followers of Christ Should Serve the Common Good. And for film this week, I review a documentary called Into the Abyss from 2011. In 2001, Michael Perry and Jason Burkett of Conroe, Texas, murdered three people for a red Camaro. In his new documentary, director Werner Herzog interviews all the players involved, so we experience the tragedy from almost every perspective. Michael Perry, who was executed just eight days after his interviews with Herzog, and Burkett, who's eligible for parole in 2041. Then also a police lieutenant who investigated the crime, the prison chaplain who's present at the executions, the prison official who across his career strapped 125 prisoners to the gurney and then removed their bodies after they died a sister of the victims, Perry's brother, Burkett's father, who's also in prison, a friend of Perry, and his wife. Herzog admits that he opposes the death penalty, 
but, but as with all his films, he's more interested in the interior human psyche than the external factors of the plot. It's easy enough to connect the dots of broken people in a broken system who are all a mysterious mixture of good and evil. A new documentary by Werner Herzog, Into the Abyss. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a famous poem by a famous poet. John Donne, who lived from 1572 to 1631, Sonnet 14. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but not breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, o'erthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viceroy in me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. John Donne, Sonnet 14. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, January 15th, 2012, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.